Well, this is a special morning for us because, as I mentioned uh, earlier, the men will be heading out on retreat next week to Scioto Hills uh, Christian Camp and Retreat Center, and we are privileged to have Scott Bruns. Come on up, Scott. Uh, Scott is the executive director of the camp, and uh, his wife is here too, Pam, and uh, Pam is the executive assistant. So that could be taken both ways. It's like you need a lot of help. Is that what that one means? Okay. So, uh, but we're glad to have them here. And, um, and it's just perfect timing with the men going on retreat next week. So they get, everybody gets a chance to see you guys. We would encourage you after the service to stop back at their table in the back where you can learn a little bit more about the camp. Uh, their camp is uh, one of the missions organizations that we support. And so it's a worthwhile cause, and we're so glad that you're here with us, Scott, to share. He's going to share a little bit about uh, the camp, and then he's going to bring a message for us today. So, uh, so praise God. Can I pray for you real quick? Yes. All right. Father God, Lord, I pray for my brother, and I just ask that you would uh, speak through him this morning. Encourage our hearts. Uh, Lord, help us as we seek to understand what you are doing down there at Iota Hills. And, uh, Lord, how you can use us to help bring about your purposes. And, Father, we do pray for next weekend and just ask for your blessing to be upon everything that happens there that uh, we might go down um, and hear what you have to say to us and then come back changed and transformed, conformed more to the image of your Son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, brother. Well, it is good to be with you all. And uh, we're delighted to be your first time at New Life. And I'll just tell you this, that Pam's voice sounds a lot like God's voice sometimes. And so I need to be careful to listen. But we are celebrating in May 42 years of marriage. And in, uh, yeah, that's awesome, isn't it? And we like to tell folks we're still on our honeymoon. And that's why we don't have any money. But uh, that's okay, too. And we're also celebrating 42 years of being in ministry, primarily working with kids uh, over that time, and that's why I have white hair. But uh, we love what we do. We're privileged to do what we do. We get to live at camp, right, 365 days a year. It doesn't get better uh, than that. But let's go ahead and uh, share a little bit about uh, the camp, and I need my slides put up. Can we do that? Here we go. And uh, it's our 57th year of ministry. Started back in 1965 as a vision of some, uh, a group of Baptist churches, and the thing has grown uh, over the years. And just to give you a kind of a visual of where in the world we are, we're about, uh, actually, according to my GPS day, one hour and 48 minutes uh, from here. And if I wouldn't have gone to the office first, that would have been true. And uh, so you can see we're right on the, the uh, Ohio River there in Scioto County, and we're called Scioto Hills because we have nothing but hills in Scioto County, and that works that way. Um, we are building on a great heritage of leadership from the past. We're privileged to uh, uh, just take that helm. We've been there now 15 years, and it's been a delight to see how the Lord has used us to grow uh, the camp. We have a mission that is important to us, and that first statement we want you to realize that we believe that we are an arm of the local church. The church has been ordained 
to win the world for Christ, to make disciples and to grow disciples, and it's our job to come alongside and partner and provide an, an environment that helps that take place as well. And we do that in accordance with God's word and all of our programming. Uh, we try to be Christ-centered in that, and we try to provide this attractive outdoor setting, and right now the trees are just gorgeous down at the camp. Um, we love the local church. We have nine families that live at camp with us, and all of us are involved in local churches, serving in local church, but we believe in the local church and want to support uh, that idea. But here's what we want you to think about. We want you to see to having a camp experience, whether you're a child or an adult, we want you to see that as part of your Christian education curriculum for your church. And probably somewhere in your bylaws, or your constitution, there's something about training children primarily in religious or Christian education. And we like to think of our setting as just another part of the curriculum for students and it's not something you come and check off your bucket list, but it's something that you do on a regular basis uh, in order to grow uh, in your relationship with Christ. Obviously, uh, all of us went through a, a first time, right? New uncharted waters last year when the, as the kids say in Southern Ohio, Ohio when the Rona hit. And uh, uh, we were blessed. 2019 was our best year numerically. It was our best year in a number of ways. It was our best year giving in support of the camp. We've been able to do a number of things to move forward. We had just finished some uh, wonderful winter retreats, had record attendance at our winter retreats. Our summer camp numbers were up 12% over 2019's numbers. And then the virus hit and we shut everything down. You know that. And make a long story short, we lost about 75% of all of our clientele our uh, constituents, and we lost about a half million dollars in earned income last year. But we knew in doing that from the start that God was going to be faithful, and we knew that he would give us new God stories to tell, right? And the biggest God story of the whole thing, um, as we even went through and told a 1,000 kids they couldn't come to camp, we also did that again this year. We, we made some changes, but... Uh, we just didn't feel it was right to go ahead and open our kids' camps again yet. But the biggest God story is that we saw that God was faithful to us. So I just want to give you this number. So we lost a half million dollars in earned income. Uh, we, uh, in 2019, had $179,000 come in in gift giving, which is amazing. We finished 2020 with $470,000 in gift giving. And it was from our churches and from individual donors. And there were people, we had no idea who they were. Uh, we had churches, we had no idea who they were. Your church has blessed us with financial support as well. And the Lord allowed us to modify ministry to keep our entire staff. We did make a few changes, but uh, the Lord has done that. And the reason that that happens, my... Thing didn't advance here now. Oops. I don't know what's, there we go. Um, the reason that that happens and why people have literally come out of the woodwork to help meet needs is because camp has impacted their life. And we've heard that story numerous times, uh, even from churches that 
that have been involved with our ministry as well. So camp is an endless story of life change. I just got two quotes for you. I'm not going to read the one, but the one that's the paragraph simply says, a high school girl came to camp that week at camp, changed her life. She went home and changed her family's lives, and they've still been impacted by the life change that the girl went through at our high school camp. One of my favorite quotes came a few years ago when a nine-year-old boy came up to me and said, next to being born, this has been the best week of my life. And, and it doesn't get any better than that, folks, right? Our National Association, they call it the power of camp, getting away from your normal routine. And that's why uh, the camp setting works. It's because it's a counterculture. It's a culture that doesn't exist anywhere else uh, in, in a student's life. And we have this temporary community that we build with with summer staffers and our permanent staff, and we're all headed on a mission to impact and love on kids and, and influence them, and we're out in God's creation and enjoying the stars and the moon and, and all the different things we have in that camp setting, and so God can begin to do a work in the life of a student so great spiritual impact takes place. They tell us that 80 to 90% of all people in full-time Christian ministry made a significant spiritual decision at a Christian camp, 80 to 90%. So it, it works, it, it's just a wonderful thing. Uh, and then as they have been impacted, as Paul even prayed, that uh, we would come home changed and encouraged and more conformed to the image of God so we can influence our popular culture. So our plan for 2021, we just wanna go through some of that. We did decide to, to not do our kids' camps again. We are offering uh, churches an opportunity to come as a guest group. If they bring their own counselors and helpers, then we're gonna run camp for them. We do have three weeks of that. Uh, this summer, we're just finishing up um, some winter retreats that we actually moved to uh, spring. We have 135, 140 kids will be leaving the camp today. Uh, it's so good to have students back at camp after a year. Um, as we've been mentioning already, next week is our men's retreat. And the $89 that you pay uh, is worth the price for the meals. We just bought the ribeye steaks. We're adding brisket to our smoked pork dinner. And, and you won't go hungry. If you do, it's probably because you're a vegan maybe. I, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. That was bad. But uh, uh, Jeremy Kimball is a professor at Cedarville University. will be speaking and does a wonderful job for us. We have a, a work weekend. We'd love to have you consider coming down uh, in May and helping us do some things to get ready uh, for the summer, whether you're skilled uh, or not. Um, we've got these hybrid guest group weeks that we're doing, three weeks of that before we do four weeks of family camp. And uh, we would love you to consider coming down and having a vacation with a purpose. It's the most affordable vacation you'll have, and it'll be one of the best vacations you ever had. And I'm not just bragging about that. That's what everyone tells me. We used to have two on one week. We added two weeks. It filled up. We're having four weeks this year, and they're almost full. And by the way, I should mention that we have six spots left in the New Life cohort for the men's retreat that can be filled. And so there is room for some of you to uh, join us. We partner with a Liberty Deaf Camp. If you know someone who is a child of a deaf adult or you know someone who uh, uh, is hearing impaired, they can have a camp experience by partnering with us in Liberty Deaf Camp. And this fall, the ladies retreat 
uh, that second week in September. It's a wonderful time. It's a three-day deal. Uh, we try to wine and dine the ladies, chocolate bar, different things, little massage, all different kind of things they do. And Jill Neiheiser is the pastor's wife here in Lancaster, Calvary Baptist, and she knows how to speak to women. And we just want to encourage you to be part of that. We do a father-kids retreat in September as well. We added a mother-daughter retreat in November. Uh, we did that first time, and then we finished the year with two events in Christmas time, uh, a Christmas dinner, Christmas at camp, uh, where we have a, a wonderful dinner together and have a concert and enjoy some fellowship together. And then we just started a young adult retreat. We canceled last year, Lord willing, we can reintroduce that uh, in December. We want you to pray for us and uh, pray for our needs, pray for wisdom, pray for direction as we move forward and try and decide what to do is best. Pray for our staff's health as well. Thank you so much for your partnership, for your prayers, encouragement, and uh, financial support uh, that we receive from you. We appreciate that, and we love new life. The first time I've been here, and, and this is awesome. So let's change gears a little bit, and I want to invite you to open your Bible to the book of Ephesians, and uh, been asked to speak about evangelism, and we're, we're talking about personal evangelism in how we do it, if you will, in a camp setting. So personal evangelism, camp style, I've entitled my message this morning, I love to tell the whole story. There's an old hymn that says I love to tell the story, but we want to be careful to know and understand the whole story as we share our faith and live our faith and live out the gospel before others. We want to make sure that we're telling the whole story. So we want to make sure that the good news is really actually the good news. And it has to do with the fact that we have to understand the bad news first. I grew up in the church. My folks uh, went, uh, took us to church all the time. And I remember in fourth grade, our church in Chicago, my cousin uh, was sitting here and he said, don't you think it's time that you went forward and got saved? So I went forward, everybody that went forward was crying, so as a fourth grader, I was crying. And they took me downstairs and someone led me in a prayer and they said, you're saved. And so I associated for years, I associated the fact that I was saved because I walked down an aisle and because I said a prayer. And it wasn't until I was 16 that I fully understood my sin problem and came to faith in Christ and uh, been growing and trying to understand and learn and help others understand that uh, along uh, the way. I used to practice preaching when I was a little kid and uh, we would stay at the church. Our parents were out in the hallway talking or whatever and we would play church and I'd be the preacher and I'd be yelling and screaming and I'd go down in the aisle and try to pull kids out and get them to walk down the aisle and they'd be saying, no, no, no. And I'd say, yes, you need to. So that's kind of the feel that I grew up with, right? So that experience has influenced how we train at camp. We guard against emotionalism. Camp can be very emotional, throwing your stick in the fire and everybody's doing it, so I'm gonna do it as well. Uh, it can be uh, guilty of easy believism, of simply not dealing with the truth uh, adequately, and so having kids make some premature decision that doesn't last, and coming back every year and making the same, wait, that, that shouldn't be the case if we've been 
transformed. So we try to guard against that, against false conversion, against confusion. Our model that we use at the camp is based on a curriculum called Spread Truth, and it, it is this idea of understanding that the Bible is God's big story of redemption. And there are four parts that we've got to start with God. We got to talk about sin and the fall of man. We have to talk about the res- uh, rescuer, Jesus Christ, who came to rescue, rescue us, to redeem us. And then, not just to redeem us, but to restore us to fellowship and to Christian living and to have the hope of eternal life. So our weeks that we do each year is we develop a theme. Uh, this year it's from 1 John. We try to use that pattern uh, to help our kids and our counselors be trained in helping the kids understand the big story of the gospel. God, sin, Jesus is our rescuer. He restores us to fellowship and gives us the hope of eternal life with him in heaven. So just for yourself, you need to practice telling your own story. You need to be able to share your story um, of how you came to know Christ and then fit that into God's big story of that. So we love that pattern. We believe it is important for our campers to understand that as well as it's important for each of you to understand as well as the ones that you may rub shoulders with and chat with. We had at our couples retreat, we we met a new friend, a 73-year-old Catholic lady who taught a ballroom dance class for our couples. And we were privileged to eat dinner with her twice and we talked about the gospel. And she needs to know the full gospel as well. And we tried to tell her our story and we tried to tell her in the time we had uh, God's story. So we wanna, first of all, talk about the whole story of the gospel. So we're in Ephesians chapter two to do that. We better, we, we're, we better fully understand the whole story. Um, and when we do that, then we are better equipped then to share our faith and to help people understand uh, the whole story. Now most people generally know something about Jesus, something about him loving them. They heard that when they were a kid maybe and even something about the fact that he went to a cross. But until they grasp the seriousness of their own condition, they will never grasp the beauty of the gospel of grace and their desperate need for salvation. People tend to think they're pretty good, don't they? They tend to compare themselves. They tend to think that their good will outweigh their bad and we need to help them understand the truth. So we begin by sharing our faith about the idea of the bad news. Chapter two, verses one through three talk about that. The bad news isn't just that we tend to sin or that we evidence sin or that we even think we're a sinner. The truth of the matter with regard to the bad news is that we're born in sin. So if you got your outline there, we need to understand the real problem What's our real problem? The real problem is we have a sin nature. We sin because we're a sinner at heart. Romans tells us that it was by one man sin entered the world and sin passed upon all men and all men die because they're sinful. Theologians call that total depravity, that we are completely sinful or we're as depraved as we need to be to be completely condemned before a holy God. 
were 100% guilty, totally depraved. It may not be that you're as sinful in your actions as you could be, but the truth of the matter is that you are as sinful as you need to be for a holy God to say you can't enter heaven. So let's look at Ephesians 2 there and just look at these, the words and the description that Paul gives us. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So we have this problem where we are born in sin. It tells us that we do these sinful things. We follow the course of the world. We follow the prince and the power of the air, Satan. We live as sons and daughters of disobedience, and we live for our passions and for the desires of our flesh, and that's a natural thing, and it's a bleak description of the evidence that we have a sin nature. But the key uh, as to what Paul is trying to describe for us is that we are dead in our sins. We have no hope of life. We have no hope of fixing our problem. People who are dead don't do anything. I used to tell and use an illustration of a cruise ship, of a guy falling off the side of a cruise ship, and they were in, in the South Pacific, and uh, the captain just told them that there's a one mile, 500 miles to the northwest, and the waters are ice cold, and they're shark infested. And this guy falls over, overboard, and he says, oh, um, come back, right? Come back. And the, the boat goes over, and you hear, goes off in the distance. And the guy's out in the middle of the ocean, and the water's cold. Sharks start swimming around him. And he says, oh, where's that island he told me about? And, oh, it's only 500 miles away, so I'll just start swimming. That's pretty desperate. The problem with my illustration is that we're not in the water with an effort to try to save ourselves. Biblically, we're at the bottom of the ocean, dead, and we can't do anything about it. That's our bad news. A number of different places, Jesus himself says, I didn't come to condemn you, you're already condemned. He says, if you don't believe in me, you will die in your sin. Why, because you are born with a sin nature, you're born uh, to sin. Which brings us to one of the parts that oftentimes we leave out when we share our faith, and that's the worst news. The worst news isn't that we just are born in sin and that we have this sin problem and we're condemned to holy, righteous God would, uh, could not allow us entrance into heaven but the worst news is once we discover that and we can't, we discover that we can't do anything about it on our own, that's pretty bad. That's, that's the worst news ever, right? Here's the illustration I like to use. Most people believe that when they're born, they're born on an escalator that goes to heaven. And they think if their good works outweigh their bad works, they're gonna be okay. And unless they're like Adolf Hitler or Charles Manson, then they're gonna be all right because everyone thinks somehow their good outweighs their bad. But in reality, we're all born on an escalator to hell. Our sin puts us there. 
And once we figure out that this escalator isn't going to heaven, we have this sin issue we can't deal with, we can't fix on our own, and then we say, I gotta get off. I've gotta get off of this escalator. But you can't on your own. Someone has to come rescue you off the escalator, off the, the, your, your path to hell. I think it's a great illustration. When people realize the bad news, we need to help them understand the worst news is that they can't on their own do anything about it. So verse three, the latter part of the verse says this, um, that you were by nature children of wrath. And then he says, and everybody, the rest of mankind is also by nature a child of wrath. So we have this need to uh, understand our real problem. We also have this need to understand the severity of our predicament. All mankind born in sin is under the wrath of God. No one can do anything on their own to change their situation. C.J. Mahaney says this, Paul and the other biblical writers have no inhibitions about expressing God's wrath. Why? Because they knew that understanding the fix of justification begins with the understanding of the reality of God's wrath. Unless you are aware of that certainty, you won't understand the necessity for justification. Without wrath, mercy is meaningless. Without wrath, grace is unnecessary. Without wrath, you have no gospel. You'll never feel the need to be declared right before Almighty God. He goes on to say, God's wrath against sin is real. It's terrifying. When his holiness and sin collide, the inevitable result is wrath. His wrath makes a Stephen King horror novel look like a nursery rhyme, he says. The more you get to know him, the more you fear, uh, the more your fear of him will increase, and that's a good thing. Wrath of God is simply this idea that God is resolute in his action to punish sin. And as a holy, just God, he has every right to do that. And that's the bad news. And the worst news is you on your own cannot do anything. We need to help people understand their desperation for the gospel. I provided a list for you at the end of your notes just to show you that this theme uh, is woven through the bad news. And we have to deal with the bad news before we can deal with the good news. But the gospel is the good news, isn't it? It's not a, a new word. Paul used a word that the Roman Empire used, uh, and it was simply uh, they were going to pronounce a gospel. They were going to pronounce a good news. And so people would get together, they'd blow the trumpets, and the king or the emperor would come out, and he would say, we've got good news today. My wife just had a baby boy. Yeah, everyone cheers. Because if they didn't, they were fed to the lions or whatever, right? Or we just beat the Persians in a war. Hey, that's good news. And they would announce it, and it was called the gospel. Paul just makes it the best news ever by telling us, you're a sinner, you can't do anything about it, you're born in sin, the evidence is that you keep sinning, and you cannot fix it on your own. But the good news, the good news is the gospel. We're gonna look at verse four, and I believe that verse four includes the biggest but in the Bible. Now you're probably thinking, B-U-T-T, no, we're talking about B-U-T, 
the biggest but in the Bible is in verse 4. Let's just look at it as we look at the gospel here. So let's go back to uh, verse 3. Among whom you all once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and you were by nature children of wrath, the worst news ever, like everybody else in mankind. But God. That'd be okay to say amen there, right? Or shout hallelujah or something or get up and and jump up and down. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he makes us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages uh, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then we know these verses, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. It's not the result of works, why? Nobody can boast, he says. You can't do anything to fix your problem. It's strictly a gift that God gives, the gift of grace and the gift of faith. No doubt Jesus in his work on our behalf is the only solution for the bad news. He truly is our rescuer. When he was born, they said his name is going to be called Jesus because he shall save or rescue people from their sin. It's the best news ever. And it's really the best news when we first of all understand the worst news. R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite quotes says this, the glory of the gospel is this, the one from whom we need to be saved. Think about God's wrath, a holy, just God who has every right to condemn us and sentence us and to to carry out his wrath against sinful man. R.C. says, the one from whom we need to be saved is the one who has saved us. Like that like needs to go on our wall somewhere, right? The one from whom we need to be saved is the one who saves us. Because his love for us, his grace and mercy trumps his wrath. Tim Keller, you've probably heard this before, the gospel reminds me every day that I'm far more depraved than I could ever imagine. But the gospel also reminds me every day that I'm far more loved than I could ever dream. That's our message. That's our story. That's where we need to fit our story into God's big story. We love the good news of the gospel. However, as we're talking with people, and even as you're sitting here yourself, there is one condition that God requires or one requirement for you to enjoy his grace, and it's faith. You're required simply to put your faith in the good news to place your faith in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Colossians says he has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death and will present us holy if indeed you continue in the faith. Thanks be to God, Paul says, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification of the spirit, through the work of the spirit, and by belief in the truth. Romans says, since then we have been justified 
by faith. There's so many texts in the New Testament that explain the one condition for us to enjoy the good news is to place our faith in the, in the gospel, to place our faith in Christ. Our definition at camp for faith is simply this, placing the full weight of your life in Christ. And we have high ropes courses that help us illustrate that. So when you're standing on the edge of the zip line, we call the avalanche and it's a 40 foot drop. And you're harnessed in, in a rope on a cable and you've got a, a worker telling you to step off. You have to trust the rope with the full weight of your life, right? Trust fall, where we fall back, and trust we're going to be caught, go on a giant swing, whatever. The high ropes are a great illustration of what it means to have faith. We need to be people who put the full weight of our life in Christ, every part of our life, every element. We're, we're depending on what Christ says to be true about who he is and what he says about us. We're depending on that. Uh, with our whole life. We're not only depending on that for our future when we die, we're depending on that now for how we live. Put the full weight of our life in Christ. Piper talks about this idea of not only making Christ your Savior, but make him Lord, if you confess him as Lord, master of your life, and your greatest treasure that's what happens when you put the full weight of your life. You not only make him your savior, he becomes your boss. He becomes your ultimate authority. He becomes the master and lord of your life. And he becomes your greatest treasure so that everything you do reflects that. So when Jesus said, follow me, he simply meant change the direction of your life. Quit living for this. Change and start living for me. And that takes faith. So letter D here, we need to be about the good news. Chapter 2, verse 10 simply says that we were created for his, uh, we're his workmanship, created for good works, and we are called to walk in those things. So we need to be about living out our calling. So we need to understand then our ultimate purpose. We're created in Christ to do good works so that we ultimately walk after those things and then as a result, glorify him in our life. When we teach people, when we help people, we need to understand that coming to faith is, is a radical change. I think we're guilty oftentimes of, of helping people come to faith and not helping them understand what they're coming to. Jesus says that you need to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. It's a radical change. But when that happens, folks, I'm convinced that people will want what you have. I'm convinced that in your workplace, if you're living like Jesus, if you're becoming more and more like him in your thoughts and your actions and your treatment of others, people are gonna notice. Yes, some are gonna persecute, some are gonna criticize, but when people are searching, when they're dealing with the issues of life, they're gonna wanna come talk to you because you'll be attractive. Created for good works, and we would walk in them. That's the result of living out the good news. 
I want to finish with an illustration from the Old Testament. We're not going to take a lot of time. I just want to tell you a story from 2 Kings chapter 6. I want to challenge you to go look at it later. Because there are times in the, New Test- in the Old Testament where the story took place, something took place, and it clearly is a type of the gospel. There's some element to it that points us to the gospel. When Noah was shut in the ark and the door was sealed by the Spirit, there's something to say about those who were safe and secure inside, and we get a picture of our security in Christ that's related in the New Testament that we understand. So all through the Old Testament, there's these types. And I just want to illustrate this idea of bad news, the worst news, and, and the good news, best news ever. And here's, here's the story. As we know, the, the nation of Israel, um, after Solomon, was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They couldn't get along. And uh, the northern kingdom had 20 kings, all 20 were evil. They were all out of God's will. They all defied his principles. And, and the prophets that came to them kept saying, you got to turn. You got to turn. You got to stop living for idols. You got to turn back to me, back to the Lord. So when King Jehoram <clears throat> was the king and living in the capital city of Samaria, the Syrian army comes, Ben-Hadad, I think is the king's name, and he surrounds the city Walls are great unless you can't get any food and water in, right? So he, he puts the, the city under siege, and he's not trying to kill all of them by attacking them. He's just going to wait long enough because he has all the supplies he needs for his army, and he's going to starve them out. And the situation got so desperate that they're selling donkey heads which according to the law were an unclean animal. They're selling donkey heads for two bags of silver, which is a ton of income for someone. And it's what they say are little dove's dung, but they're actually little, little bags of, of corn, probably about that big, two silver coins. They're desperate. Some people think they actually were dove dung, and they were actually eating bird poop in order to survive. That's pretty desperate, right? But worse than that, two women who are desperate decide that they're going to kill one of their children, the one mom's child, and eat that child. And then the next day, they would kill the other mom's child and eat. That's, that's as desperate as it gets. That's an incredible picture of our desperation and need for help. Someone had to come to their rescue. They go to the king. The king doesn't know what to do. Instead of repenting and turning back and calling people to, to turn to God's way, He curses Elisha and wants Elisha to die. Elisha makes a promise because he speaks upon the Lord, and he says, tomorrow at this time, you're going to be selling stuff at the gate, and it's going to be dirt cheap. A promise. God can't lie. So Elisha's sitting in his house knowing God's in charge, gives him the good news. God's going to take care of you. God's going to be gracious. God's going to meet your need. And the captain of the army says, if God opened the, the windows of heaven... No way that can happen. Kind of sounds like the disciples with the feeding of the 5,000. What are these two fish and five loaves among so many? So Elisha makes a second promise, and he says, Captain, you're going to see it, but you're not going to eat it. Next day, he uses four lepers 
which is interesting because in the New Testament, leprosy is a picture of sin, right? And you have Christ healing those who are lepers, and the lepers are outside the gate. The people won't let them in. The Syrian army's out there, and they say, well, if we go in, they're going to kill us. If we go to the Syrian army, they may kill us. If we stay here, we're going to die anyway, so let's take a chance. They go to the Syrian army, and God's gracious provision is that he makes the sound of horses and chariots so loud that the the Assyrians thought that the Israelites had hired other countries to come and take care of them. So they leave everything behind and they run scared with their tail between their legs, running for their life. The lepers go there and they go in the one tent. There's all these supplies, food, gold, other things. And they're enjoying, they're eating. They go to another one, they get more supplies. And while they're sitting here, here's the moral of the story. While they're sitting there, they say to each other, this is not good that we're doing this. We need to go back and tell the king. And he says, this day is a day of good news. God's deliverance, God's redemption, God's promise fulfilled. And they received that and they couldn't keep it to themselves. They were convicted about it. They even said that if we keep it to ourselves, we may be punished. So they go back, and the, the, the city is saved because of all the supplies. Ironically, all the people starving, hundreds of starving people hear the good news, and guess what they do? They run out of the gate, and guess who's at the gate? The captain. And guess what happens to him? He gets trampled, and Elisha's promise comes true. You're going to see it, but you're not going to eat it because he died on the spot. The moral is this. Well, we've got the best news ever. We can't keep that to ourselves, can we? Can't do that. We have to share it. We have to see people where they are. We have to help try to understand where people are. The world and the culture we live in, they're desperate. They're living in fear. They have no hope. Suicide rates are up. Uh, Hopelessness. Uh, People are looking and shaking their fist at Christianity, and yet they need to realize, and we need to help them understand that Christianity, Christ is their only solution to their problem. And their greatest problem isn't that they have to wear a mask or that there's a risk that they might get sick. Their greatest problem is that they're born in sin. And the worst news is that they can't do anything about it on their own. And the best news ever, folks, is that we can help them understand and come to faith. Let me just give you a a few applications here in closing. We tell our staff that we need to measure success by being faithful, not by numbers. One cabin will have kids come to Christ and they're telling their God stories and all the staff's crying because the story is so incredible. Four kids come to faith and, and get transformed and, and that, that counselor's on cloud nine and then here's this other counselor who did the same thing, was faithful and none of her kids come to faith and they're kind of like deadbeat or whatever and in their routine and she feels like a failure. No, 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 no. We measure success, folks, by being faithful to our mission 
making disciples, there it is. It's right there. Know God, find community, change the world, make disciples. That's right there. That's your mission. And you want to be faithful to that. Let God take care of his part and don't get in the way of that. Don't try to produce premature Christians. It doesn't work. God has to transform their minds as they hear the gospel and the spirit of God works in them and they understand the grace and the gift of faith. Don't be surprised by ungenerated people. (laughs) They're doing what they do naturally. They're born in sin. We need to accept them where they are, regardless of what their lifestyle is like. But we also need to be speaking the truth to them in love. We need to invest in their lives. That'll reap the best harvest. So we need to develop relationships. Develop relationships. Spend time with people. We need to, Pam and I have talked about this 73-year-old gal that we've chatted with, and we said we need to get together for lunch and talk more. Um, and uh, we want to help her understand where she is. Fourth, winning friends to Christ may require them to get lower than they are. They may not be desperate enough. We need to let that happen. Keep teaching them the bad news. Keep teaching them the the worst news, keep, keep teaching them, talking them about the good news of the gospel, but let the Spirit take care of that, and sometimes they just aren't low enough, they're not ready to uh, understand their desperate need for Christ. Folks, we have the best news ever, and regardless of persecution, regardless of risk, we need to not keep it to ourselves. Then I like to ask two questions, what if questions. I asked the the Catholic gal this the other day when we were sitting at the table, Yvonne, what if you're wrong? Wouldn't you like to know before it's too late? Great question to ask people. Wouldn't you like to know before it's too late? And then there's a, a thing called Pascal's Wager or Pascal's Dilemma, dealing with Catholicism and works and people thinking that their good outweighs their bad. And that's where Yvonne is. She thinks she's good enough and that she's just hoping that she can get in. That's what she told us. So what if our story of the gospel is wrong and what if good works do outweigh bad works? Pascal said, well, I'm okay. I've been working with kids for 42 years, right? What if I'm wrong and there's no afterlife? What if we just die and go into oblivion? I'm okay because I've lived a good life. I've, I've, I've been friendly, I've loved people, I've enjoyed people, I've enjoyed my life, I've helped people, and if for some reason there's no afterlife, I'm okay. But what if I'm right? What if what I'm telling people is the truth, and it is? If I'm right, then those who are believing something else are gonna be spending an eternity separated from God. And if you were wrong, wouldn't you want to know that? Folks, be the gospel. Live out the gospel. Let me challenge you to to continue to learn from it and grow. Live at the foot of the cross. Let the cross and the word of God and, and the spirit of God in you continue to change you and mold you into what he wants you to be so that you can be his hands and feet, so that you can influence those that you do life with, so you can impact and help transform by the Spirit of God 
those people that you rub shoulders with, whether they're family, co-workers, or even a lady at the grocery store. Let's pray. Father, thanks for our morning. Thank you for the fact that we can assemble together. We know that's not always the case in some uh, states or parts of the country. You know, this virus thing has played havoc with our thinking, and the political unrest can get in our way and cause us to be anxious and worry about the wrong things. Help us, help us. As Psalm 37 says, to not fret, but to delight in you. Help us to live out the gospel so that we exude the heart and mind of Christ and so that others will see what we have and we'll have an opportunity and a platform to share our faith with them. Give us the grace to live for you. If there's those here today that don't know Christ or maybe today was the first day they maybe understood their desperate condition about being on their way to hell and can't do anything about that, we pray that they would come to understand the good news of the gospel and that you would allow them by faith to believe and to transform them. Thank you for new life, for their ministry here in this community. Help them to be a light uh, and to impact uh, their world and to meet the mission that they've been called to. In Christ's name we pray, amen.